Well, it's been enjoyable and, and fun to honor our dads here this morning, and I always look forward to the Dads of Distinction segment because you really never know what's going to happen in that moment, and to, to actually win a gift certificate this morning, that was really cool for me. Yeah, I have to think about other questions I can manipulate to work that way for me next year. <laughs> and church family, there really is no question in my mind that in the honoring of our earthly fathers... We are honoring our Heavenly Father when we do that. He is, after all, as we said, the inventor of this thing called the family. He's, in his infinite wisdom, he came up with the idea. He designed the central figures of the family to be a father and a mother. In fact, God goes so far as to actually dedicate one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament to the family charging children to honor and respect and cherish their parents and do that as an extension of their devotion to God as their Heavenly Father. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 talks about this. In fact, God even attaches a promise of a blessed life to the children who will carry out that command. Honoring earthly mothers, we did that last month, and earthly fathers today. It's biblical, and it's enjoyable, it's memorable, it's fun. It pleases our Lord greatly. But with honor comes responsibility. The awesome privilege and responsibility of raising up a new generation to love and serve and worship the Lord. And to do that in the midst of a culture that seems to be doing its very best at every turn to dismantle the family. Every week it seems there is at least one new legislative action, one new court ruling, one new school board decision, some medical development, something every week it seems that threatens the welfare and the health and the development of the future and the future really of the American family more aggressively than ever our culture is re- redefining what what constitutes marriage and what what really makes a family a family where all this is going to take us culturally it can scarcely be imagined if we think back 10 years and we would have said 10 years ago this is where we'll be today none of us would have believed that what will it be 10 years from now we have no idea. It's, it's just crazy times and hard for the family. One thing is for sure, though. Being parents is a daunting, demanding responsibility. Being Especially being Christian parents in the culture and in the times in which we live. In particular today, since dads really are the center of, of our focus this morning, today being a Christian dad, we can say without reservation, is a daunting and demanding responsibility. Perhaps as never before in the history of the family has there been the need for dads who are capable and biblically effective at leading their families through the moral confusion of a culture that really has lost its way. Never before has there been a greater need for fathers who would biblically direct their families, even as the culture's appreciation of the family, even as its perceived need for the family, fails before our very eyes. Never have we needed godly dads more than we need them today. 
It'll take a dad with some remarkable qualities, some extraordinary strengths, and some deeply settled convictions to be able to to pass the faith baton on to the next generation. In fact, I would suggest to us that it will take nothing short of what the Bible would call a man of God, a man of God, to be able to successfully pass the faith baton on to the next generation in these times. So I would like to ask you, if you would, church family, let's take our Bibles and let's, let's turn into the book of the New Testament called 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where I'd invite you to go with me. There's a little note page in your bulletin if you would retrieve that as well. And let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning to seek both encouragement and direction and challenge for our dads today. And since I'm a dad myself, everything that we're going to be talking about, it comes back on me. I'm not picking on you dads this morning. I'm right in the midst of it with you. Though I'm a grandpa and my kids are grown and out of the home, I'm still a dad. And the things that we talk about, they really are on me as well. I've titled this study, My Dad's a Man of God. Because it's my fervent hope that no matter how young or old we might be as dads, my earnest desire is that these words, my dad's a man of God, would be words that our kids could and would speak of us as they talked about us, as they thought about us. They would, these would be the, the, the words that they would want to say. My dad is a man of God. And when you're no longer around, that your kids would say, my dad was a man of God. One of the greatest treasures I have in my life is the fact that I can say that about my father, who passed away 12 years ago now. My dad was a man of God. May we all be able to, to have that title assigned to us both while we're living and when we're not around here anymore. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 14 are going to be the focus for our time together. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he says, But as for you, what's the next phrase? O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop us right there. And I know that I have stopped us mid-sentence here because the verse keeps on going into to verse 15. And that's normally not a good thing to do, to stop a passage right in the middle of a sentence. But for our purposes this morning, these four verses will serve us well, and I believe they'll provide all that we can handle with the time that we have left uh, to focus our attention in the direction of dads. So that's why I've stopped us. And I've done no harm to the text in doing that. But that's what we need to do just for time's sake so we can effectively cover 
what the Lord wants for us. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to a young pastor whose name was Timothy. And I like that thought. That I'm fond of that, that thought. Pastor Timothy gets this, this letter from Paul. Paul looked upon Timothy as if he were a son. Timothy wasn't his biological son, but he certainly was Paul's spiritual son. And, and Paul saw himself as Timothy's spiritual father. Timothy was Paul's pupil. He was an apprentice. He was a, a man who Paul had personally taken under his wing and for several years had mentored him and trained him to be an effective church leader, to be a pastor. And so Paul is addressing his son in the faith. And as we just read, he calls him a man of God. What a wonderful title Paul bestows on his young protege. And to all of us, and and especially to dads, would that such a title could rightly be assigned to us, legitimately be placed upon us. None of us would dare to take such a title on us ourselves. To do that would be, would be arrogant presumption. But if there was only one title that we might aspire to own today, dads, that one that we could rightly own, would that it would be this title, a man of God. What an honor, what a statement of the grace of God in any man's life if this title, man of God, could be rightly assigned to you and to me. Paul, as is so typical of him, is not content just to refer to his spiritual son this way. No, he is Holy Spirit led now to go on from there having assigned this title to Timothy, to go on from there to describe what a man of God actually is doing that then makes the title appropriate and possible. He presents four specific mandates. We might even go so far as to call them commands, I suppose. Four specific mandates to Timothy, which when they are in place and working in a man's life, they distinguish and identify him as a man of God. Now, the immediate context, we have to acknowledge, involves topics that are related to pastors and church leadership. Paul's not specifically thinking here about fathers and fatherhood. He's writing to a pastor, and we know that. But that said, the truths that Paul presents here can have a much broader application than just pastors. They can easily bridge, I believe, into the lives of husbands and and fathers who are in the eyes of God, biblically, the spiritual leaders, the spiritual heads of their homes. So the leadership component is still there, even as we talk about dads. And in fact, everything Paul is going to admonish Timothy to do Here in this passage, we find these admonishments in other places in the New Testament as well, directed to any Christian. So, my dad as a man of God can find a place in this amazing passage. We're not stretching the context and making it say things that it really isn't saying. Years ago, I was leading a home life group, and I had decided to open that evening with an object lesson that was designed to reveal how we see ourselves before God. How did each of us see ourselves as we were doing life in 
Jesus. And to, to make this work, I gave each person uh, a paper cup. And the assignment in this life group was, was take your paper cup and as best you can with whatever means you have at your disposal, turn that cup into a picture of yourself. Everybody had about 10 minutes to work on this, and it was amazing. It was actually, it was, it was entertaining to watch as they attacked this, this assignment. Some of the people were very creative, and, and they would bend, and they poked, and they cut, and they tore, and they wrote on their cups as if it was the final project for a, a senior engineering class in college. It was, it was oh, a real work of art, some of these cups. Well, we went around after everybody had, had finished and, and each one shared what had been done and why they did what they did. And as you might imagine, some were very involved explanations as they presented their cups. And finally, it was the turn of one elderly fellow, great guy, loved the Lord, very involved at IBC uh, at that time. He has since gone home to be with the Lord. And as we came to him, I, I couldn't see his cup. And, and, and the fact was he was hiding his cup. He was hiding his cup because it lacked all of the finery of many of the other cups. And he was thinking, maybe they'll just pass by me. When he did reveal his cup, because we weren't going to let him hide, he held up his cup and, and it looked like he hadn't done anything to it as he held it out to us. And then he said, this is what I am. And he turned the cup sideways. And he had punched the, uh, the bottom of the cup out of the cup so that it, it was gone. And he was looking through the cup. And he said, I hope that I am nothing more, as he passed it around, I'm nothing more than a pipeline through which God flows. Everybody kind of just sat there stunned, you know. The beauty of it, the simplicity of that, self-disclosure. Now, I obviously haven't forgotten about that moment, and that moment happened more than 20 years ago. And I hope I never forget about that moment. An old man holding up that cup and with a smile looking through it at me and, and, and saying, I don't want to be anything but the conduit, the, the pipeline through which God flows. As I read the words man of God here in this passage, I think of that old man and I think of that cup. Because that goes a long way towards describing what a man of God is. A man who by his words and his thoughts and his actions is only an instrument through which God is able to speak and act for his greater glory and for the good of other people. The title, Man of God, is itself uh, filled with a, a long history. In the Old Testament, for example, this phrase was reserved for a person who had been entrusted by God with a, a high office, had been given the responsibility of, of speaking for God. Those who spoke for God represented him in certain ways to other people. They were called men of God in the Old Testament. Moses is the first person in the Bible to have worn this title. Of course, he represented God to 
the nation of Israel and, and also to the nation of Egypt as God brought Israel out of Egypt and slavery. It was used of Moses. It was used of a messenger who was sent by God to announce the birth of Samson, man of God. It was used of a prophet who spoke about impending judgment for disobedience, man of God. Samuel had this title. King David wore this title. Elijah, Elisha, many others in the Old Testament. Of the 70 uses of this title in the Old Testament, it always referred to one who was a special possession of God and represented God in an official kind of a role, called to God, called by God, called to speak for God. In the Old Testament, that was the man of God. Now, I share all of that with you because, oddly enough, when we get into the New Testament, this, this title is virtually non-existent. It only shows up two times in the New Testament, and both times it's referring to Timothy. From all those times in the Old Testament to virtually nothing in the New. We say, well, what's the reason for that? Why, why that term is so absent in the New Testament? I don't think it's hard to figure out why that's true. With the coming of the Lord Jesus and with the imparting of the Holy Spirit into every believer's life upon confession of faith in Christ, what happens? What happens to you when the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you through faith in Jesus? Well, every believer in Jesus becomes an ambassador for God, doesn't he? You become an ambassador for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 declares that truth. Every believer becomes a representative of God, a mouthpiece, a pipeline, a conduit, a witness, a proclaimer of the truth of God. So every redeemed man, woman, young person in Jesus is that special possession and has the great commission mandate. Lead other people to Jesus. Tell other people about Jesus. Live well for Jesus. And so now this man of God title reflects much more broadly this relationship, which is to be both seen and heard in every Christian's life, in your life, in my life, whether you're a dad or not, whether you're a man or a woman. And so a question that we might rightly ask is, well, well, how will I know a true man of God when I see him? How will I know? What are the marks which will identify him? And, and given the focus on dads today, uh, we're going to focus in that direction. So, so what will distinguish a dad who is truly a man of God? What will distinguish him from other dads? And what will a dad be doing whose children rightly boast of him, my dad is a man of God? Now those are great questions, and I really thank you for asking those because we're going to answer that. This morning, you'll notice that immediately on the heels of the title in verse 11, Paul gives us the first of four answers to the question, how will I know a man of God? And specifically, a dad who is a man of God. So on your note page, a man of God dad will first be known by what he, what church? What he flees from. He's going to be known by what he flees from. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The dad, this dad is going to be known by what he runs away from. 
Now that word flee here in verse 11, that's the Greek word fuge. And we actually get our English word fugitive from this Greek word. So, of course, that means then we're talking about someone who is running away from a danger or a threat, perhaps an enemy of some kind. And as Paul uses that word here, he puts it in the present tense. It's a present tense verb to let us know that this is to be a continuous action. All the time, it's a kind of activity that the man of God is is involved in. He is continually fleeing these things. In other words, the man of God runs from something. And there's never a moment when he can say, now I can let down my guard, now I can stop. I don't have to worry about this anymore. No, it is a keep on fleeing your whole life long. Man of God, never stop. Never stop. But flee from what, Paul? From what? Flee these things. Now, in order to know what the these things are that Paul has in mind, we have to back up into the verses that precede verse 11 which we did not read. When we do that, we discover that that Paul has been talking in these previous verses with Timothy about the enormous corruptive and destructive potential that money and material possessions can have in a person's life when they become overly important. When money and material possessions become the priority in your life, the, the first love in your heart, That's what Paul has been talking about in the verses just prior. And so to his young friend, Paul says, there is a dangerous pit that you can plunge headlong into if you are not super careful. He actually says more, but we can just take verses 9 and 10, and, and that'll give us a good feel for what's going on. So verse 9, but those who desire to be rich who have a love affair with money, they fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or, or, or hardships or troubles. But you, man of God, Flee all of that. Man of God, you put as much distance as you possibly can between yourself and the snares and the traps that are concealed within a love affair with money. Dads, that's great advice, don't you think? In our culture especially, which is is just over the top with regards to, to, to materialism and having stuff as a measure of your worth, That's the message that we hear all the time in our culture, that that you're truly only a a, a great dad and a providing dad for your family and your kids if you have this and this and this, only if you you do this and that, and, 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 and you live in this area of town and you have this kind of a house and you drive this kind of a car. And so with that as the continual cultural message, dads and granddads, we need to hear what Paul is saying here. Things and possessions and lots of money don't make for a great family and they certainly don't make for a godly dad. 
Paul says a dad who is a man of God who is, is one who is known by what he runs from and what he says no to. Jesus will say it like this in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No servant can ter- serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve what? God and money. I don't know how Jesus could be more clear. There is no gray. There's no middle ground in this, in this presentation from Jesus. You can't do it. Now, we do need to acknowledge that provision for our families materially is, is an important dad function. It's our responsibility. Back in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, verse 8, if we were to look back there, Paul would say that a dad who won't provide for his family materially has abandoned his faith and is living like one who has no faith at all. So it's an important deal to provide for our families. But providing for our families and then being driven to, to, to be overly indulgent, as our culture would have us do that, well, those are two very different things. Now, Paul's not saying that money is evil. He's not saying that money is bad. But loving money so that it pushes out God, so that it displaces the Lord Jesus in your life, loving things... Well, that's a grievous evil. Verse 10, Paul says that some have wandered from the faith because they could not flee this lure. And they've brought much trouble upon themselves and their families. In our culture, it's a constant battle as a dad not to get sucked in. But you, man of God, flee and never stop fleeing. These things. So dads, I'm going to ask you, as even I ask myself, right now, do you hold your money or is your money holding you? Nobody can answer that question but you. Only you can look into your heart. We all know, dads, you may even have had a dad who plunged his home and his marriage and his kids into real heartache and pain because he could not flee. You don't want to be one of those dads. You, man of God, flee these things. Second, man of God, dad, you're going to be known by what you run hard after. You're going to be known by what you flee from, but you're going to be known by what you run hard after. Second half of verse 11, pursue, chase down, go after, run hard after righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. And like the word flee, just before it, a moment ago, the word pursue is also a present tense verb, indicating a lifelong, never-ending, running hard after. There's a lifelong running from one thing. There's a lifelong running after other things, running after biblical virtues the things of God, which is what Paul's listing here. So you man of God type dad, you're not running after fame, you're not running after success or wealth or power or or material stuff, but you're running after God-honoring virtues that reflect a heart that is in relationship to Jesus. 
These are Jesus' traits here in verse 11. Paul describes these virtues. Six different terms. Pursue righteousness, he says. That's a broad term. It refers to running after what is right as God defines right. Our culture defines wrong as right, doesn't it? Many times it's doing that. And sometimes because we have this sin nature still resident within us, even though we're followers of Jesus, we can take the right or the wrong and we can, we can rationalize it till it's right. But no, we're talking here about, we're talking about righteousness and, and what is right as God defines right. And he has defined that in his word. A man of God, dad, runs down righteousness. Godliness. That means thinking the way that God thinks. Whereas righteousness may, uh, for Paul, be focusing on what we're doing. Well, godliness would be thinking about what God thinks about. What does he think about? Am I thinking about what God would think about? Running hard after God thoughts. Say, what are God thoughts? Well, Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Here's what he says, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, do what? Think about these things. These are God thoughts. These are God's ways of looking and thinking. Running hard after God thoughts. That's what the man of God does. Faith. Well, that's confident trust in God, not just for salvation, not just for heaven one day, but trust in him in the minute, in the moment, for all the issues of life, the good and the bad. Practical trust in the course of living day to day. Hebrews 11.6 says, It is impossible to please God without what? Without faith. No faith. No pleasure for God. Run hard after faith. Love. Greatest of virtues, isn't it? The greatest. The first commandment. Jesus said, love who? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And love one another. John thirteen thirty five, A distinguishing trait of every Jesus follower, every man of God dad, is he's going to love God. And he's going to love others well. Also, steadfastness. Maybe your version says endurance. You're going, to, you're going to run hard after endurance. Standing firm under fire, Dad. When trials and tests and, and unexpecteds in life come, and they surely are going to come, you stay the course. You push through. You don't give up. Spiritually tough dads are men of God. And then, as only the Holy Spirit could do it, in a dad's life, you mix this spiritual toughness with an amazing gentleness. A man of God does that. This is a quality we see so often in Jesus. On one hand, he courageously stands up against the religious establishment of the day. In fact, goes all the way to the cross with great courage and strength. And yet he's so gentle as to have little children climbing up into his lap. That's the beauty of this, these virtues. This is what Jesus did. And so the man of God, Dad, is, is gentle, and he runs hard after these other virtues his whole life long. 
He knows that he'll never fully arrive. Ever. But he keeps pursuing. No masks of piety. No charades of spiritual superiority. He knows he's a sinful man. But he's running hard. In fact, every dad knows it would be a a fruitless exercise to put on a show and try to be something he's not. If there's any group of people on the planet who know what we really are, Dad, it's our wives and our children, right? They know what we really are. They see us every day. So we admit our imperfection and our failure, but we still run hard after God's best. Because a, a dad who is a man, of, a man of God, man, that's a holy life, and it's a powerful thing. People feel the power of a holy life. But it doesn't just happen by accident. It comes only when we're aggressive, we're decisive, we're determined to stand on this ground that we read about here in verse 11. Got to be aggressive. Got to be aggressive. From Ireland comes an interesting slice of history surrounding something known as the O'Neill Badge of Barony. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. It became part of the ancient O'Neill family crest, which you see pictured there on the screen. It all began when there was an exploration party that that was making an expedition to Ireland, and the, the word that was circulated was that the first hand to touch the shore of Ireland would possess the land, and that one would become then the baron or the lord of the land. Well, one of the men in one of the boats was O'Neill, and he rode furiously as, as, as he hoped to be the first to be on shore and lay claim to this, this title of baron. Well, there was another boat that took the lead, and it was very clear that it was going to get there first. And so with a grim look of anger and also triumph, O'Neill glared at that rival boat that was in front. He threw down his oar, and as the story goes, he seized a battle axe, placed his arm on the seatboard of the boat, and cut off his hand, and grabbed his hand, and threw it on the shore. (laughs) Thus the hand, as you see it there on the crest, right? That's why it's there. It's part of the story. Now, that is a radical, aggressive approach to securing for yourself some possession as well as a legacy for your posterity. But I would submit to you that Jesus said something quite similar to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember these words? Matthew chapter 5. If your right hand causes you, to, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus obviously is not advocating a literal application here. If he were, every true follower of Jesus would be blind and handless. Right? Because we all sin, even in our, in our relationship with Jesus. But what he is saying is, he's saying, Christian, and specifically we'll say Christian dads this morning, be deadly, serious, ruthless, aggressive, decisive in your approach to sin. Flee! 
and then hold nothing back in your pursuit of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Run hard. Be aggressive. A dad who is a man of God is going to be known by what he flees from and what he runs hard after. And then third, as you see it on your note page, by what he fights for. What he fights for. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of the faith. The man of God, says Paul, is a fighter. He's a warrior. He's a battler. He's a soldier. And the battle is obviously not an earthly battle so much as it is a spiritual battle. And the enemy that we fight every day is who? It's Satan himself, isn't it? Satan in the spiritual realm that is opposed to God. And so at stake every day, Dad, as you think about your family, are issues of faith and and trust and reliance, faith in the promises of God, trust in the transforming power of Jesus in your life, reliance upon the Holy Spirit's power to help you live every day in a God-honoring way. So it makes it a good fight. It's a good fight because it's about faith and trust and reliance upon your God. Some fights aren't honoring to God. They're not good fights. But here is a form of fighting that is good spiritual warfare. A man of God, dad, fights the spiritual battles with all that is in him, and he never stops. In fact, the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, Paul tells us what this battle really is all about. Chapter 6, verses 10 to 13 of Ephesians. Paul exhorts us. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? The devil, Satan himself. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not where the battle is. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and after you've done everything to do what? To stand, to stand firm. Every day that you and I live in Jesus, we are pitted against this powerful foe who is bent on destruction. His name is Satan, and he wants to see our our marriages, Dad. He wants to see our marriages disintegrate. He wants to see our our children in rebellion against, against us and against God. And he wants to see our families destroyed. He wants to eliminate anything in our lives that gets credence to the power of God and his promise to save and transform people's lives. A Christian family with a man of God dad and a marriage that is strong and committed for life and and who has children who honor mother, mother and father and brothers and sisters and are themselves honored in return. That is a family that poses a tremendous threat to Satan's strategy. Oh, that we would be such families here at IBC, led by dads who are men of God. Satan, better than anyone else, knows that this is not a game 
It's a life and death battle with heaven and hell and judgment in view. And so the dad who wins the good fight of faith does so only as he lives in dependence upon God, clothed in the armor of God, skillfully wielding the word of God. He fights the good fight. And notice as Paul rounds out verse 12 that he includes one very helpful bit of advice to the fighting man of God. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. In other words, Paul says to Timothy, by extension to us, keep the big picture in view as you fight. Keep that eternal perspective. Don't get caught up in the ebb and flow of little moments. Look beyond today and keep an iron grip on on that life that is to come and in which there will be a future with reward and relationship with God in person. Think big, fight big. The power of a big God behind you, man of God. Be a dad who is known for what he fights for. And then Paul says there's one more way that the man of God, dad, will be known. If you flip your note page over, he says he will be known by what he is faithful to, what he flees from and what he runs hard after and what, what he, he fights for but also what he's faithful to. Verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man of God, keep this command. Now, this statement by Paul is understood by by Bible teachers in two different ways. Some hear Paul saying, Timothy, you're called to be a pastor of Jesus' church and to proclaim the good news. That's your your calling. Do not do anything that would mar or, or compromise or jeopardize your ministry. Others may forsake their call, but you stay the course. You remain faithful. You keep the command. Well, that's what some think. Paul's saying. Others see Paul here simply saying in one other way, Paul, even more, keep those commands of verses 11 and 12. Lumping it all together, flee sin, run hard after holiness, fight well, and keep your eye on the eternal prize as a man of God is supposed to do. Keep that instruction. Keep the command. That's how some see the passage. But either way, the underlying exhortation is the same. Brought into the family of God by the grace of God and through faith in Jesus and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have a responsibility to live for God. Be faithful. Keep the command. This is what we are all in Jesus to do. Dad, it's what we've been called to do. To love God, love the Lord Jesus. That's the first command. And to love our wives and our kids and our neighbors, those who are saved and not yet saved, that's the second great command, Jesus says. And do all of that until the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Either he comes to us or we go to him. You do this. You keep the command. So, Dad, as we wrap it up, do you want your children, whether they are young and in your home right now, or whether they are grown and and on their own, Do you want them to be saying of you, that's my dad. 
and he's a man of God. Do you want them to say that of you? Do they want do you want that? If you want that, then you know that now is when you have to flee from and run hard after and fight for and be faithful to. You've got to do that now. Right? That's it. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, may it be so for us as dads today. For all of us who who love the Lord Jesus, but especially our dads today, I just ask you as a as a an expression of your grace and your patience and your kindness toward us, Father, would you be pleased to pour out on the dads who are here and who call IBC home and who may be visiting us maybe from another church today? Can would you be pleased to pour out upon these dads these qualities? to enable them to fulfill these mandates, being men who flee from and run hard after and fight for and are faithful to your call. It's it's an incredible responsibility. These men and I, we will never do it on our own, ever. But if you would work and be pleased to work through us, it will happen. And Father, as well, I just ask your special blessing upon our dads for the remainder of this day. Whatever they're doing, would you be pleased to just make it a special day, refreshing and encouraging for them as they seek to live for you. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Church family, let's stand together.